When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Atari or Coleco? Welcome to H's Basement. Let's get started. So we all know that video games were really pivotal to the book, but they were also pivotal to me growing up. That's one of the reasons why this book is so interesting to me, and I find it so attractive, is that you've got this story that pivots around really an Easter egg nested inside of a game. But the two consoles that affected me the most were the Atari and the Coleco. So today, we're going to discuss whether we would use the Atari or we would prefer out the Coleco. Which one is the better console? And mind you, when I go into this, I'm I'm really talking from a personal perspective. I hope that you share with me and with Aaron and the rest of the show how these consoles affected you, which ones you think are better. But to start with, let's go with the clear heavyweight winner, right? The, the, The belt carrier of video games, Atari. Atari got started in 1972, but the you know the main console that we're really talking about is the 2600, the coveted 2600, and that came out in the fall of 1977 for 199 bucks. Now to put that into perspective, today that's as much as an iPhone. That that would have been like 840ish bucks, right? And when you compare the uh, Atari system with your phone, which can play thousands and thousands of games at high resolution we're talking about like video quality stuff here to something like pong or asteroids the the difference is remarkable but back then there really wasn't anything quite like it and it was one of the first systems to introduce that whole cartridge method where the game was stored on the cartridge not necessarily stored hard into the machine and that really changed everything because it meant that the companies could kind of break even on the consoles which you know kind of led to that console war but they could make a great profit on the games so the console really became the vessel for their ability to make money and their ability to to sell these games and, and find ways to to get more games to work on their console. So if you remember back, the Atari was just this this blocky looking unit. You had this square joystick that absolutely just it, it was not. You maybe you could put it on the table in front of you, but to hold it in your hand, particularly as a kid, was incredibly clumsy. But it was just this square block of plastic with a tall peg sticking out of the top as your joystick and one button. And that was it. And it would wired up to the console and you'd play your game. And when it first came out, it came out with nine games. But down the road, we're talking about games like Space Invaders. We're talking about games like Asteroids, Missile Command, Dig Dug, Pac-Man. One of my favorites, even Pitfall. But the one that the book focuses on the most, the one that 
had this sort of edge of defiance where somebody went in and said, if we can't have take credit for having put in hours and hours worth of time, I'm going to etch my name into the game. And that was Robin Warnett when he created Adventure for Atari. And that really inspired the book. I, it, it really falls around the ability to, to, to become an in, to join a group of people who know this secret handshake, who, who found this thing in the game. Millions of people played Adventure. But possibly at the time, only a handful of people accidentally stumbled upon this. And it's not like we had the internet back then. It's not like you could go and read about it and then look up how to do it. You had to know somebody who knew someone who knew how to find this game. Or maybe, just maybe, you accidentally stumbled onto this thing. So Atari came out. In 1972, the main game system came out in 1977, and it only lasted until about 1983, when the when the video game crash hit the nation, really just the world. And as at that time it was alleged, you know, up until at least recently when it was confirmed, that nearly a million games had been dumped into a landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And it was legend until 2014, where a group of people came together and went to research this and re-dug up a number of those games. And in fact, Ernest Klein was a part of that effort and was involved in that, that escapade to turn legend into fact. You know, and when we talk about console games and their rise into prominence, you, you know that the Atari 2600 is a classic system when it gets introduced into the National Toy Hall of Fame, as it did in 2007. And it is now in the Smithsonian American Art Museum, under the Art of Video Games. It was installed there in 2012. So, if anybody gives you any guff for playing video games, you can say, I'm not playing video games, I'm supporting art. <laughs> but for me, uh, Atari wasn't introduced in the 2600 to me. For me, it was introduced through the Coleco. Now, to pitch back, we're going to look at the Coleco, because the Coleco is the underdog in this fight. It had a, a number of third parties that it supported, uh, and for me, it was an awesome, awesome system. But Coleco started out as a leather company in 1932. They supplied stuff to repair shoes, and they moved around and traded hands, and Coleco was bought up, and in 1972, they got into making snowmobiles. And it wasn't until 1976 that they really got into making electronic digital toys. And they focused in on games. They focused in on games where you could have two players. We're talking sports games like soccer and basketball and baseball. And that's kind of how they were known. And in 1982, they introduced the ColecoVision. And this is the system that I'm most familiar with. They had pads that came out and they were wired. They had this sort of... You know the, the sort of you know curly Q wire that would go in, and it was this this much larger pad. You had multiple buttons. You had keypads for typing in a number of some sort, uh, along with the joystick at the top. Uh, it really introduced a larger complexity that was possible for games, and it supported that. But on top of being able to play a, a wide variety of games that that Coleco allowed third-party companies to develop for. For example, Pac-Man, Galaxian, Frogger. Uh, for me, 
it was, for me, it was Donkey Kong. I would come home and I would do my homework for 30 or 40 minutes. And then immediately afterwards, I would break out my game of Donkey Kong. And the goal of playing the game then wasn't to finish the game. It was to see how far you could go without using up all of your lives. And for me, that was level 39. And I thought that was an awesome feat at the time. And I don't even know that there was necessarily a goal. I think the goal for me was to see how far I could go. And even to this day, I have great memories of playing that game and coming away from that console with a level of accomplishment that I personally had never felt when playing Atari games. But the cool part about the Coleco was that it allowed for an Atari adapter, which we had. And you could plug this into the front of the ColecoVision, and then you could play your Atari games in that. And for me, that was the gateway to Atari. And as a kid, there was rumors with other kids who would play games that you could take a snapshot of your screen score for certain games and you could mail it in and potentially, you know, get on a list of, of people as, a, as a, like a global ranking or potentially even send in to see if I had the best score. Now, today, I believe that was true because there's a lot of stuff in the news about how certain people who played games in certain ways and got certain rankings have had those taken away. But back then, it was just rumors amongst kids. So let's pull back to the book. And what's important here is that the book really focuses in on on the games that Ernest Cline loved and, and was introduced to and the kind of thing that gave a kid an in amongst other kids who played games. And that's really key, because finding these Easter eggs nested in games initially started again as as a rebellion to the system. You know, aha, I'm going to scratch my name in here, and, and somebody's going to find it, and I'm going to, that's how I will be known. And it then started off as something that people, that drove people. Now, Easter eggs in games, and Easter eggs in movies are nested in as a means of pulling people deeper into the media. And there is a level of audience that wants that in, that wants that additional knowledge, that wants that that metafactual stuff, right? Because it's a part of a larger community. It means that it is that secret handshake, that membership into that community. It is a, an instant in that you can talk about with people who know about it as well. It's that wink and a nod. And, uh, you know, it's, it's akin to, you know, wearing a certain type of shoes where other kids are like, wow, they, they recognize, oh, man, those are, those are killer shoes. I know those shoes, right? So for someone who was awkward, for someone who didn't make friends very easily, having that in was, uh, you know, easy to have, easy to attain, and easy to get in on. That gave you something that you could connect with other people. And I think that's really why... You know, that game in particular, and possibly why Atari led to the making of this book, because this book itself is all about people who have come together based on a common rare knowledge, a sort of, you know, a cult knowledge of pop culture. And, and here we are with Ready Player One, where we have this game and this great movie. And we see that Atari is at the heart of both the movie and the book. It takes up chapters, and it takes up a great bit of time, and including a very uh, poignant moment at the end of the movie where 
that meaning of playing the game for the sake of playing is more important than beating the game. And that that was really the core of it. But when we look at Coleco, Coleco barely has a nod. It's I don't even it's not even in the book. Not mentioned really anywhere. I'm not even sure if it was mentioned in that chapter where they had the, the giant egg of consoles that were going around the room towards the end. I, I, it's barely in there at all. And a lot of the game references were third-party created, so I don't know that they were necessarily specific to Coleco. But I would say that the one place where there seemed to be uh, a, a, a definite and appreciated nod to this gaming system is at the end of the movie, when a younger Halliday is playing the game in the room and the older Halliday is talking with Parzival about the importance of the real world over the Oasis. And his younger version is playing the Coleco. He has the, the little pad in his hand with a little in curly Q wire, and he's playing some game. But that's definitely the Coleco vision sitting there on the floor in front of him. So if I have to choose between the Atari or the Coleco... I would have to go the way of Ernest Klein, but not maybe in the way that you might initially think, because Ernest Klein has a love for the Atari because of its, the effect that it had on his childhood. And for me, I would choose the Coleco, because I have a deep appreciation for the nostalgia and maybe even the direction that my life took because of the time that I spent with that console, the challenges it provided me, the kind of prestige that, prestige that it allowed me to have in playing the games on that system. So for me, it's the Coleco. But what about for you? Is it the Atari? Is it the Coleco? Is, is it some other gaming system during that period of time? Go on Facebook, go on Reddit, go on any of the social media, shoot it to us, and maybe we'll talk about it in our next episode. But until then, this is H's Basement. I'll see you in the next chapter. One last thing. Uh, during the episode, I gave credit for adventure to a Robin Warrenette. And in fact, it's actually Warren Robinette. This is not the first time I've made this mistake. Uh, but I apologize, and I hope you enjoyed the episode despite the mistake. Thanks.